Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to continue talking about Admiral Joe Fowler. And the interesting part of this story is, as you know, in the past, I've talked about both General Potter and Admiral Fowler and their connection to the Walt Disney World Resort and how important they were to the construction of the Magic Kingdom. And I found an interview with um, General Potter that I played on a previous podcast, but I actually found some audio interviews with Admiral Fowler that I wanted to play for you here. Admiral Fowler is a really interesting guy, and he had a lot to say. He's very technical in the way he talks about things and kind of dry in the way, the way he says things, but it's really pretty interesting to hear him. So I have two pieces of audio to play for you. The first would have been about, from about mid-1971. The park was finishing construction, kind of going through the process, and ABC News showed up and was collecting some B-roll footage, that is, shots of the park being constructed that they could use for a news documentary they were doing about the parks. And they managed to sit down and talk to Admiral Fowler. And he had some interesting comments, and it was kind of fun to listen to for a minute because it kind of gives you a perspective about what happened at the parks and how this came together and just how deeply connected it all is. So let, I'll play that for you now. My so I can relax because I'm not on I've camera. I've reached the stage I do nothing but relax. <laughs> okay. Uh, Walt Disney World is probably the largest private construction job in America. And as the construction chief for that construction job, the number one question probably is, uh, are you on time? Yes, we are. We uh, have no reason at all to doubt that we will open uh, on 1 October 1971. Now, when you open in October of this year, what will the guest find at Walt Disney World? What are the full dimensions of our Phase 1? Well, they'll find everything completed that we have planned for Phase 1. Uh, including the monorail and all of the uh, ships on the uh, uh, lagoon, all of the shows uh, in the theme park. There will be, of course, a number of projects that uh, uh, will have uh, started, but which we do not expect to complete until uh, a phase two or one of the succeeding years. Now, will phase one include an, an amusement theme park like Disneyland? Yes even uh, more extensive than uh, Disneyland. And may I say, uh, we believe the shows are greatly improved and much more sophisticated. And when you say improved and more sophisticated, can you give us some examples of the kind of shows that we Well, I think probably the best example I can give you is the, uh, A Small World. Uh, we first put The Small World in the New York Fair at an estimated cost of around three and a half million. We put, uh, ostensibly, the same show in Disneyland at a cost of five million. And here we are putting it in uh, at a cost of an additional uh, uh, three million. So the show is improved and, uh, as I say, more sophisticated. 
Uh, one of the similarities uh, in what uh, uh, Walt Disney World will be when it opens and what uh, you found at Disneyland when Disneyland opened? Well, the basic concept uh, uh, that the company has of uh, an amusement park will be uh, closely followed in uh, the Disney World. Uh, we will incorporate uh, all the lessons that we have learned in uh, Disneyland. And of course, we will maintain our uh, uh, very strong uh, uh, policies of safety, courtesy, and cleanliness. Uh, and even there, in the, in the area of cleanliness, as you know, we have a more sophisticated means of disposing of trash, as, for example, the AVAC system. So, in summary, I would say that uh, it will be an improved uh, uh, attraction over what we have at Disneyland. Uh, you mentioned the AVAC trash removal system. Uh, can you name some other examples of where you are trying to pioneer in the area of ecology and and uh, conservation? Well, without getting into too much detail, we're trying to uh, set an example in the state of Florida for clean air and uh, a clean water that comes uh, out of our area, uh, both as regards drainage and as the, uh, uh, regards the disposition of the uh, uh, sewerage. Also within the theme park, there are a number of other uh, uh, major attractions which are uh, notably improvements over what we have at Disneyland as for example the castle. The castle as uh, you doubtless have seen is uh, a much more elaborate, it's uh, higher and uh, furthermore it houses a very uh, excellent restaurant on the second story. Uh, in the case of Main Street uh, there we have uh, substituted certain materials which uh, based upon experience will be uh, maintenance-free, fiberglass, and uh, etc. Uh, furthermore, on uh, Main Street in the Disney World, uh, the second uh, stories are practical. We use those for offices. In Disneyland, they're merely uh, supporting the facades that uh, you see uh, on the public, or the public sees in the street. Uh, in the case of the uh, Jungle Ride, why we have introduced the Cambodian ruins, which follows very closely and after much research, the stories of the uh, Far East. Does that cover pretty much what you... Along Main Street, uh, this is an authentic uh, uh, turn-of-the-century town. Yes, uh, yes. That follows the same uh, theme of uh, uh, Disneyland. It's the turn of the century. You'll see the horse-drawn streetcars. You'll see the old variety store, the Emporium. You'll see the uh, silent uh, cinema and uh, the Penny Arcade and the other things that were dear to the heart of uh, many of our fathers and uh, grandfathers. Uh, the, uh, the, okay. Now you mentioned the Navy. What dimensions are this? is this Walt Disney World Navy? Well, uh, we probably should recognize that uh, the Walt Disney World is far more extensive. It has not only a theme park, but it has many other attractions uh, such as the uh, a uh, large lake and the lagoon, the uh, uh, theme hotels, the Polynesian and the uh, Contemporary, uh, the uh, rather uh, large fleet that we'll have uh, operating on those waters, uh, including the two uh, Osceola side wheel steamboats, which uh, after a lot of research follow very closely the uh, early uh, steamboats, uh, river steamboats in uh, Florida. Uh, they'll carry some 200 passengers each, 
they'll have the old rock arm uh, propulsion, the single cylinder, and already we've had a tremendous amount of correspondence and interest on the part of people throughout the country. Uh, then we will have uh, six uh, smaller steamers, uh, the Voyageur class, which will carry about uh, 40 passengers each. And we'll have a host of uh, small sailboats and uh, uh, other uh, watercraft, which I know that everyone will enjoy. You're using modular construction in the hotels. In the hotels, yes. This is a departure from uh, anything that has been done before, inasmuch as the modular construction here is made of steel. And uh, after it leaves the uh, U.S. Steel Realty Factory, it is uh, practically completed, uh, with the exception of the interior of the uh, carpet and the furniture. But all of the utilities uh, are in, the, in place, and it's merely a matter of connecting up the uh, wiring and the piping as the unit is placed in its position. Okay. The cost of Disneyland uh, when we opened was approximately $17 million. Although subsequently, in the uh, following 10 years, we uh, invested another $110 million. However, in the case of the Disney World, when we open, the construction costs will uh, approximately $240 million. And added to that will be the cost of the hotels, and uh, still further, uh, the cost of the uh, uh, drainage and the uh, utilities provided by the district which will probably total another $30 million. The second interview is from 1981. He was doing some sort of a talk, and they were asking him about Walt Disney World Resort. And I found the uh, interview to be kind of interesting. It has a slightly different bent on it. It's more general and broad about the resort and some of the ins and outs and intricacies of buying the land, similar to the stories you've heard from General Potter and other people. So kind of an interesting story that I wanted to play for you here. Well, maybe I should tell you that uh, Walt passed away before we actually broke ground in the Disney World. But in the two years previous to that, we had toured that pasture land in a jeep, and what he had planned and visualized is almost what you see today, including the location of Epcot. It was amazing. Now, the details were not all the same because there was a time when Epcot, as you know, was covered by a great big glass dome. But uh, it, uh, I, maybe we, we, it would be well to go back just, uh, just a, uh, a bit and say that the acquisition of the property here in Florida was probably the best kept secret that has ever been uh, known in this country. There were only five of us in the company that knew exactly where the land we had finally selected. Uh, for some two years previous to that, we'd had a man, uh, Bob Foster, who was stationed here in Florida, and he roamed, and he, we had two other associates, one was the head of the bank here, that knew it was Disney, but other than that, nobody knew. Uh, they knew it was in Florida, but that was all. Uh, you see, for the first... Uh, and I find myself going back again. I think maybe this would be interesting to you. From the time we opened Disneyland, it was a great success. And oh, my God, I must when have I divert... the land here in Florida. Oh, the land in Florida, yes. I used to tour. I bet I know more individual towns in the state of Florida than any other human being. Up and down one coast and the other. I came into Johnny's Corner one day, 
Uh, this was oh six or eight months before we opened Disneyland, Disney World, uh, before we started construction, I should say. And the old boy that ran it came from Vermont. He said, oh, this has been a terrible season. He said, if somebody come along, he said, how about you? I dropped in for a cup of coffee and a sandwich. He said, you have $2,000, I'll sell you the whole thing. Oh, one of them were the finest corners, you know, down there. And, of course, I didn't disclose who I was, except I was a visitor from up north, just taking a look around, etc. But I, I couldn't help but think. I could have bought that whole property for 2000 bucks. At least he offered it to me. And subsequently, when we bought the big property, uh, some 28,000-plus acres, and paid $189 an acre for it, one year later, we had to buy part of this land uh, that uh, Johnny's Corner owned, and we paid at the rate of $100,000 an acre one year later. Now, that, of course, was an exception. But uh, believe me, the land uh, was the uh, closest kept secret. I used to have to go back and report to the uh, board of directors. Uh, I, looked at, I looked at a piece of property, 5,000 acres, uh, south of the airport. And uh, I went back to that. I had to keep the board of directors advised. I didn't tell them where it was, but I said we, we didn't identify. We knew it was in Florida, that's all. And I said, Joe, what in the heck do you want 5,000 acres for? Why, you only got uh, 260 acres at Disneyland. I said, yeah, but let me tell you, Walt said he wants a piece of property big enough so he won't have a Las Vegas a Harbor Boulevard on one side and West Street and not with all the honky-tonk and uh, so forth and so on. He wants to have a place big enough so he can have his park, control the periphery, etc., and so forth. Well, to make a long story short, as you know, we bought the, uh, the uh, property, and the way we bought it was this. We had, uh, early in the game, when uh, our development was making so many of our rides, uh, Roy and Walt decided the best thing to do was to get control of our development because practically all of our work was there. That We were there, big support, and we wanted to be sure that we had priority. So they bought the... Uh, they bought, uh, 51% of the stock. And then uh, Walt turned to me and said, all right, Joe, you look after it. So I had to uh, more or less look after our development. Oh, we had more fun. We rebuilt it and uh, so forth. But anyway, our development had built the overhead railroad at Bush Gardens in Tampa. So I always had an excuse for coming to Florida. And I'd land in uh, Tampa, and then I'd visit Bush Gardens, and we'd talk over the... Uh, uh, the uh, railroad that they were putting in over the animals and so forth. And then I'd get a car and I'd tour over Florida and I'd leave from somewhere in Jacksonville or one on the West Coast and have no identification of uh, who I was or so forth. Uh, apropos of that, I might tell you that uh, the last, one of the last things we did before we disclosed uh, our purchase of it, I hired uh, G. and Jensen, a big firm of civil engineers in Palm, West Palm Beach, and I met them at the... Uh, at a real estate office in, in Miami. And I actually engaged them to start in doing the work on this plot when we had, were ready to go. And I said I was a retired rear admiral from the state of Maine with an office in New York. That's the only identification I had. They left at more times. It was true. I came from Maine, and Disney had a big office in New York, and, uh, but that was the, uh, the, the maintain, how we maintained the secrecy. Anyway, the time came when we were about to disclose, but Walt wanted to see. We'd written over uh, various and sundry things, but he wanted to see the property and before we made the final decision and disclosed it to the public. So we came in on our own plane to Tampa. We had an excuse put up at the International Hotel, 
And Walt was a great one when he wanted to travel like that. He traveled incognito. So uh, and he did the same thing in Europe. Of course, everybody knew who he was. But uh, at the Oktoberfest, nobody would disclose it. He was Mr. Smith. So we came into the International Hotel in Tampa, and we registered as Mr. Smith. He and I registered as Mr. Williams. My middle name is Joseph William, Williams. And uh, we were with the bellboys getting our bags together. When over the loudspeaker came a, a, a call, Admiral Fowler, phone call. <laughs> <laughs> and Walt looked at me, and the manager came out and said, gee, I'm so sorry, and so forth. And they all laughed and so forth. Well, anyway, we saw, we saw Bush Gardens. We got in our plane the next morning, and we flew over the property. And he saw the lake. He saw the whole thing. You never saw anybody enthusiastic. It's, it's, uh, Cod Walker was with us, and uh, two or three of the others. I think uh, I, I don't remember in detail who besides myself. And Walt said, all right, fellas, it's all settled. We'll buy it. That was it. And you know, a few days later, we disclosed it to the press at uh, the uh, hotel. But that's how we acquired the land, and uh, it was a, a great problem. Let me, uh, let me finish, if you have no other questions, let me finish by telling you my last contact with Walt. On a Friday, Roy called me. I was in Disneyland. He said, Walt wants to see you. Walt, of course, had been very ill. He was in the hospital in St. Joseph's. And uh, can you come up this afternoon? I said, well, of course. And so I went up, went over to... Walt's room. They had a parquet ceiling in the room with the squares. Walt got an extra pillow, propped himself up in bed, and we spent two hours of his planning the Disney World. He said, this is where the monorail would come in, and of course a lot of it we had talked over before, but he planned, and you never saw such enthusiasm in your life. He died at 11 o'clock the next morning. I want to tell you, so many times when I was building Disney World and the problems that came up, and uh, we were having a little bit of a adjustment to make and so forth, and I felt that he was looking over my shoulder when I made this decision. All right, gentlemen. Joe, I have one last question. Uh, that by all means, my friends, if you want, and I'm sure you all do, the Disney operation of Disneyland, Disney World, and the other uh, facets of the company to continue to be the fabulous success that they still are, you must maintain the Disney image. And uh, it was something Walt emphasized from the day that we opened, uh, the day we started building Disneyland. Uh, oh, I could tell you so many things, Bob, uh, about uh, the staff that we set up when we opened Disneyland. All right, to get back to this. Whatever you do, fellas, don't lose this Disney image. Uh, remember, it's a family entertainment. Keep it that way. And uh, you, we can... Well, uh, for the first, I guess, maybe four or five years we operated Disneyland, he'd been asked, uh, he'd been asked by almost every country in Europe uh, to build a Disneyland over there, including uh, the head of Egypt. I, uh, he used to have me handle all that correspondence, so I knew, and uh, I had one uh, more or less stereotyped uh, reply, well, I'm sorry, but uh, we are so busy uh, uh, improving Disneyland that we have more work than our art directors can take care of. That was what Walt felt. So he wouldn't entertain any, uh, any uh, 
feeling for building another one until we we had the World's Fair in New York. We built four exhibits there, and I could talk to you for three hours of what happened there. We won't. But uh, then he said, well, I guess what we've got to do is to have another Disneyland. So we looked at I don't know how many places. We looked in uh, Denver, Colorado. We looked in uh, uh, up in New England, uh, uh, Springfield. We looked in uh, uh, New York, boils of 30 acres across the place. We looked in St. Louis, and I must tell you this story. This was really a... We had gone so far in St. Louis, right in the shadow of the arches, that we had a big building, which we had an option on. It had four stories below ground and five stories above ground. And we had laid out the attractions. We couldn't get land to put an outside affair, so this was to be an internal Disney operation, with, but along the same lines of entertainment, etc. And we had spent uh, two months off and on looking at this and planning you know, almost in detail the rides and the attractions we were having at the individual, on the individual decks. It was only about two blocks from uh, this, uh, and uh, Houser Bush Stadium. And of course, he more or less was the great man in St. Louis. Now, the bankers were enthusiastic about this. And we had a big uh, banquet the night before the final papers were to be signed. Walt was there, and Hauser Bush, the mayor of uh, St. Louis, was sitting beside me. When Mr. Bush got up, and he said, uh, any man that thinks he can open and make a, a success of any amusement park and not sell beer or hard liquor ought to have his head examined. Walt was sitting right beside me, and I saw that eyebrow go up. I said, the mayor, this is the end. He said, oh, that, oh, he was just, he was so mad at, at Bush. He said, I never can control that guy and so forth. Sure enough, we embarked the next morning and, uh, uh, and I, we had our own plane to go back to uh, California. And Walt said, all right, fellas, forget it. No St. Louis. And that was all. Just like that. The bankers came out, uh, I think, three times, tried to get Walt to change his mind. No, sir. And, of course, it's a wise, wise thing when we went to Florida. But, uh, oh, we had some exciting times. Niagara Falls, New York. Well, I see, I could talk for hours on those things. But anyway, all right. And there you go. That is Admiral Fowler and his talk about the Walt Disney World Resort, and in particular the Magic Kingdom, and how it all came together. I just found the whole thing really fascinating and I wanted to share it with you. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment, I wanted to talk about slavery. As you may know, I'm a bit of a history buff, whether it's Disney's history, or the history of America. It's interesting to learn about our past and some of the things that have happened and really explore what was going on. And the family and I recently took a trip to Charleston. In fact, that's where I'm recording this right now. I wanted to learn more about the history of slavery and the plantations that were in use around the Charleston area. Charleston's interesting because it had a rich 
amount of fertilizer in the soil, and it was really good for growing rice, among other things. And rice is very labor-intensive, so it took many slaves to grow that rice. And that was what made this a little more intriguing, because it wasn't what you think of as a typical plantation. So we listened, and we learned, and we went to several plantations and heard unvarnished truths about what slavery was like and how these plantations maintained themselves. Well, the short story is that there were very wealthy people who came to town and wanted to maintain their wealth and their opulence. And so they created this industry where they were using slaves to build their own wealth. I don't think we really understand just how bad it was. These were human beings who were rounded up and shipped to the New World in the cargo holds of ships in inhumane conditions, in terrible situations, to wind up in the New World to be forced into labor. And the reality of it is, the companies that were bringing the slaves over to the New World, they were for-profit companies. They were looking to bring people over to be this labor where they could make money on the slave trade. So they had to fund the ships and the crews and so forth to bring people over. And they had a yield that they were looking at. Yes, the word yield again, right? They wanted 80% of their slaves to make it to the New World. And when they got here, the indignities ensued. They were sold off to various landowners and other people, and they were dehumanized in many ways. The families were separated. They were given new names. Occasionally, they were moved to different farms and sold off back and forth. When they would meet, each, meet new people and get married in their own ceremonies and uh, have children, the children were often separated from them and given new names as well. And they were separated from each other and given new names. So there was this whole thing where it was all dehumanizing and moving people around in a way that really was not nice in any way. And then, of course, there was the forced labor aspect. They worked six days a week doing whatever tasks they were required to. And they had a minimum output that they had to do. If they didn't do that, they were beaten. Seriously. There was a culture of intimidation and other tactics that were used against them to try and make sure that they always met their goals and their deliverables. There were overseers and there were all kinds of other people who made sure that the world was not a good world for them. Life was not good. They lived in little ranchackle shacks with very little food, no running water, nothing really to call their own. They made no money, they couldn't really do anything, and they would live many generations in the same house, many families in similar situations, so that there really was no chance for them to grow as a society other than talking to each other. They weren't allowed to read, of course. They weren't allowed to, to do anything outside of what they were told to do, except for on their day off, they could grow their own crops and do some things like that on a small plot of land that was available to them. They were also suffering indignity at the time of their death, whether they died in the course of their job or whether they died of disease or whether they just succumbed to something else. They were just simply buried somewhere. The families knew where they were buried, but there were no historical records made of them. So while you see all these old-time cemeteries and all these places that went on, you realize that they're all for white people. The blacks were buried unceremoniously in hillsides. Yes, they were allowed to bury their own, but there was really no record keeping for them and there's no headstone. So you go to these different places and you see all of these places where you realize there were thousands of people that are buried somewhere on the hillside. Some of these plantations we went to, they haven't even begun to excavate them. 
Now, I do have to say that I went to Mount Vernon some years ago, and there were, they had started an excavation process. And yes, George Washington was a slave owner, so he had some slaves that were kept on his plantation. These slaves themselves were buried unceremoniously in the hillside. And there was an archaeological process ongoing when I visited where they were talking about uncovering how they were buried, where they were buried, sort of if they could learn something about the history of these slaves and maybe even do some DNA testing and learn a little bit more about who they would be ancestors to. When you look at the big picture, the slave population outnumbered the white population in most of the South, certainly in South Carolina, by about 10 to 1. In theory, they could have overpowered the white population and taken over. But it wasn't that easy. Because of this culture of fear and intimidation, as soon as someone would act up in some way and it felt like they were going to be a problem, a rabble rouser, if you will, they were shipped to another farm. So that way they couldn't continue to associate with the people that they used to associate with. So they couldn't build anything. And if someone did manage or a group managed to escape, they were hunted down by the locals. And they were summarily killed, often very publicly in front of the other slaves, to warn other slaves that if you run away, this will happen to you with no education, no communication method really beyond your realm there. You had no way to know how extensive or how bad this was. So you were more likely to live by the rules and take your regular beatings and do your work. It's really an unbelievable thing that happened. Flash forward just a little bit and the Civil War comes. The South loses. Slavery ends, and there's emancipation for all these slaves. And as sort of a reparation, the government decides to chop up all of the land that they used to work, that these slaves were working on, and actually give it to the slaves to tend on their own, so they can actually earn some money to get some things, to make something for themselves. Now they'd have a piece of land to start with. And that was great. Except that when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, Andrew Johnson passed an executive order that allowed for the original landowners to regain a claim to their land as long as they basically apologized for the past. So, of course, what happened was they took most of the land back by force or through the court system, through the legal system, saying that it, means that it wasn't the government's to give to these former slaves. And so the land went back and it was retained by the original landowners. So these freed slaves still had nothing. So many of them, staying in the same place that they were in, wound up working for the plantation owners. Now you may ask yourself, why did people stay there after all of this happened? And the short answer is, they wanted to reconnect with some of the people that they knew in their lives, their family members. And the last place they saw them was here, so why not go back to here? And so they wound up working as sharecroppers, indentured servants, some term you want to use, where they were still working on the same land that they were working for before, but now where they were making a small living doing it. And it was a very meager living. And they were given a place to live, which oftentimes was essentially the same slave quarters that they lived in before. And then you had the problem of organizations like the Daughters of the South. Those are family members, mostly women, of the uh, former slave owners. And their intent was to try and propagate the myth that Things should have gone differently, that slave owners should have continued to exist. And so they, they did the things like putting the monuments to uh, Civil War generals and so forth into, the, into places where black people lived. They continued to push laws to try and make things difficult for black people. They did everything in their power 
to try and turn the tide to make sure that the black person was held down. They made sure that schools were not available. They helped create patrols that would try to round up any black person who was doing anything that might be considered inappropriate or wrong or illegal. They also helped foment the whole Jim Crow era where there were new laws created to try and hold the black man back further by saying that he couldn't do certain things that whites could. So flash forward again, it's the early 1900s. And now the narrative is changing. The Daughters of the South and other groups have started to come up with ways to say, oh, well, you know, slavery wasn't that bad. And they created romanticized views of what slavery was. And they had paintings commissioned where slaves were working in a way that looked like it was almost idyllic. They were working. They weren't, you know, they weren't toiling under, you know, someone's lash. They were working. They were, you know, kind of doing some things. And plantation owners who have rebuilt some of their plantations and have people working for them now, but aren't making as much money on cash crops are now turning around and saying, you know what, we could turn to a new industry called tourism and bring people to our plantations to see our gardens and our different things that we have here. And they started to do just that. And it changed again the nature of it because you weren't talking about slavery in a sense. You were talking about these beautiful gardens. So you were getting the other white people on your side. And then of course there were other things that happened. Like in South Carolina, there was phosphate found under the ground and that's why the rice grew here so well. But to mine phosphate is also very labor intensive. So they were hiring freed black individuals to come and work. It was backbreaking work. They had a better system than they had ever had, but it was still a lot of work and they were still making very little money. But with industry such as it was, a lot of them turned to it. But the laws that they had created where they could round up black people for just being black essentially meant that a lot of them were incarcerated and they were selling off the incarcerated to do manual labor for no money. So there was a whole game being played here. This fear and intimidation, this idea of continuing to dominate over people continued on. Then you flash forward again to the civil rights era and the fact that finally black people were having a say and were standing up and saying, wait a minute, you can't continue to hold us back it started to change the, the notion of things a little bit. And you see, you see the tides turn and we move up to today where we're seeing that continue to happen. The civil rights movement was about three generations ago when that got started. So you're still kind of close to it. It wasn't that long ago. It takes time for things to heal. And then on the other side of it, you have some of the people who lived in these tiny houses, these slave quarters that had been converted been modified a little bit. Some of them had electricity and running water. Not all of them, certainly. There were still people who were descendants of the slaves living in those quarters until the early 1990s. The early 1990s, like 30 years ago, there were still people living in these slave quarters. It's unbelievable. These small little hovels that you would have generations in them. You'd have 15 people living in a single room. You have to wonder how this culture of fear of an intimidation and holding people back caused this to happen until then. So here we are, it's a little over a generation since that happened. So it's hard to believe that everything would change overnight. If that was still going on 30 years ago, you got to believe that there was still more work to be done. There's still a lot more work to be done. In reality, nearly everyone in society condoned slavery. There was a couple of groups that specifically didn't uh, condone slavery. The Quakers being the primary example. You could say you had the Jews, 
the Italians, the Irish, who came to the New World. And in their, in their old world, they were often ostracized and had aspersions cast on them. They were the lowest of the low. And they came to the New World, and they found that there was a class even lower than them, the enslaved blacks. And so many times they would go, well, we're going to join the crowd and we're not going to be at the lowest rung anymore. We're going to go ahead and deride the blacks too. And many of them were also slave owners. If they had the means, they would own slaves to take care of their personal business. So you can't just say there were some people who could have stood up because there really was nobody to stand up. There were some abolitionists, no question. But you realize that just how pervasive this was and how big this all is. So in summary, I've told you this tale about what I've learned about slavery. Much of it I knew already, but it's interesting to put it in perspective and see it firsthand, to actually see what people lived like and what they, what they had going on and understand just how bad it was. And I'm not asking you to feel in any way that you are responsible for it or that you should feel guilt for it. This is our history and we need to embrace it. We just need to understand who we are as people and where we come from and the choices we as a society made. Were we wrong? Of course we were. But should we feel shame about it as the current generation? I don't think we should. I don't, I'm not trying to say you should feel bad in any way or you should apologize to anyone or anything like that. What I'm just trying to tell you is just understand our history. Just appreciate what it was. Don't whitewash it, as they say. So it's just time for us to stand up and go, you know what? There's more happening here. And it's worth learning about understanding and trying to do your best to say, you know what, we can do better as a society. And that's it. Nothing more than that. And that is my show for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 